Today we're talking about religion in China. We're also going back to the school. It's been a little while since we followed the English teacher story, which this podcast is at least half supposed to be about. So let's have a little recap of the state of play. I arrived in Changshu at the start of term in September, and I'd been living and working in this international school that I call the Cradle of Elites. I was teaching two main classes and an all-girl art class. Chinese co-teachers worked alongside us foreigners. Other foreign teachers included the perpetually hungry Kelly, the blonde buff sixty-something Don, also known as Arizona Man, the grumpy overgrown teenager Eddie, the highly conservative Mark, and his nemesis, the really quite liberal Penny. They're all from the USA, but a newcomer was on her way from good old Blighty, which was all very exciting. Teaching English in China? Would you recommend this to a friend? For one hundred bucks? Why not? The agency which had found me a job in China had told me, I recalled, that I will receive a payment if I refer someone to them, and this person gets a job and sticks with it for more than a couple of months. All I had to do was get a friend to fill out the form, and include my name. All my friend had to do was stop their life, leave their friends, their family, everything they know and depend upon, and move to China. Sounds all right," said Jess. I told her to think about it. These decisions aren't to be taken lightly, after all. But Jess basically gave a shrug and applied. If pressed on it, a number of other factors could quite possibly act as impetus for Jess to leave home and make a go of it in China. Not least the fact that home for Jess is Essex. Add to that two qualifications in the humanities and a subsequent job at the local takeaway, and you wonder why she hasn't already left. I had met Jess at university. Where we'd both taken up the ill-advised cultural studies MA, knowing full well that it wouldn't lead to anything beyond self-assured righteousness on ethical matters, and hopefully the ability to articulate why we are unemployed and why that's okay. Jess deployed this skill with impressive regularity, and while she usually expressed it with a shrug, I was sure that there was something profound lying beneath. To my surprise. The job that the agency found for Jess was not only in my province, not only in my city, but in my school at the Cradle of Elites. A mere two weeks later, I was hugging my jet-lagged friend in the office as she collected her books for a first class. She looked like a frightened little lamb. After the maelstrom of a day in class, Jess and I were able to catch up, have dinner, and do a little tour of the school. She presented me with a Primark shirt she'd picked up. And a second-hand book by Sebastian Falks called "A Week in December." We passed my classes and waved at the kids. And Teacher Yuan peeked into the zither room and the art rooms, past the gym and the basketball court, admired the cafe, and wandered through the Garden of Meditation, which is located at the center of all the classrooms, the noisiest part of the school. Jess is a literature fiend. She devours books like the Chinese polish-off soup, greedily and noisily. She'll dictate passages of books from memory while you're trying to decipher a menu in Chinese. She'll quote authors while you stroll to the bus stop. She'll argue with herself about their meanings while you try to talk to the cab driver. If you tell her the name of a book you're reading, you'll discover that she's already read it, and will happily tell you how bad it was when the main character died. More often than not, this disclosure will somewhat ruin the book for you. You can only hope that she misremembered, which is surprisingly likely. As we went up the stairs in the teacher's dorm, Jess told me a quote from Kafka that he wrote in a letter. Not even in a book, she said with admiration. 
When I feel love, it's not love that I feel. That's an exaggeration. The only truth is longing. But that's a lie. The knife I twist into myself, that is love. It's not the exact quote, but on looking it up, I realized that she'd come remarkably close. The working week was much the same as any other. The national anthem in the playing field, the chats with Kelly in the next door class about the terrors of canteen food, the vain attempts to get students to understand the importance of a full stop. Except that now I had a friend in the classroom up the stairs and down the hall. When Friday came, we decamped to brew kettle to see off some beers and celebrate Jess's arrival. We went with Arizona man, Kelly and her Chinese husband Ralph, and I invited Penny, who invited her Chinese co-teacher, who invited Yun, my Chinese co-teacher. The night ended once again in the David Lynch red of the KTV booth, singing old classics and downing drinks to the command Gambe, until the haze set in and somehow we got home. During the week I introduced Jess to the e-bike. Their first meeting was a hesitant one, full of full starts and awkward silences. I duly noted that Jess was perhaps best suited to the passenger role on any given trip. And so it was the next day, late morning, when we set off into Chongshu. There was now no denying that it was getting colder, and for the first time I had donned a scarf. There's something ceremonial about the first scarf wear of winter, a coziness that mutes the promise of deeper shivers to come. But not here, I thought. Jiangsu was virtually in the tropics, right? As we sped down the highway, Jess nattered away on the back. She was sheltered from the chilled wind by being behind me, and was enjoying a nice muse on the merits of vegetarian life. I was struggling to pick up the bulk of her sentences, a situation caused by the rushing wind and Jess's inability to amplify. She kept on chatting while I focused on the road, Jess is the sort of person who would turn around to you and say, Did you know that craters on the moon are actually seas? With water, you'd ask? Yes, she'd say with an audible question mark. So whatever she was saying, I'm sure it could wait. The guard outside a hotel waved at us. A man on an e-bike on the wrong side of the road beeped us out of the way. A gabble of old ladies eyed us curiously as they tended to the roadside bushes. We clumsily darted across an intersection to enter the city, past the shopping malls and found Boutique Street, a favourite area of mine, where we stopped for coffee. At Jess's insistence, we stopped at the cafe which offered a free wife, only to find that free Wi-Fi was all that was on offer. We sat with our cappuccinos and watched Chung Shu's youths zip past on e-bikes. On the way home, we stopped at a temple complex near Kun Chung Lake. It was set within yellow walled grounds and was itself yellow. Temples are almost always yellow round here, for this is the colour of the emperor. Back in the day, if the commoner painted their home yellow or wore yellow, this was seen as an aspiration to seize the crown and they would duly be dispatched by the emperor's men. Simpler times. Nowadays, yellow in China can refer to lewdness, lust and sex and porn. If this doesn't tell you something about our grand trajectory, then nothing will. We paid 10 RMB to enter the temple and strolled at museum pace around the various incense pits and buildings. The Buddhist chant was on repeat, 
It dug into my brain and stayed there for days. The sweeping Wudian roof you find on the temples is a perfect example of feng shui, which means wind water. The philosophy of flow that stems from Taoism and informs Chinese architecture and internal design. The upturned roof keeps the rain out and lets the wind in for good circulation, a characteristic that comes into its own in the temple, which is full of incense smoke. This was a Buddhist temple, supposedly celebrating Guang Ying, the goddess of mercy. Inside one building, a ten-foot-tall white guy played a banjo, and a black guy stared angrily with a sword. So far so merciful. I'm not going to try to explain all the peculiarities of Chinese folk religion or the crossovers between Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism, save for noting that when the Italian Jesuit Matteo Ricci travelled to China in the 16th century on a mission to turn the Chinese Christian, he discovered that these religions didn't really operate independently of one another. The Chinese followed them all at the same time, and it seems as though little has changed in this regard, and the custom is nothing if not practical. Locals tend to go to temples to pray for things like babies, new jobs and good exam results. In Taiwan and Hong Kong, where religion was not curtailed, this tradition has remained strong. Not so in communist China. Here in the People's Republic, the old gods were made to make way for a new deity. The Crusaders were of course the red guards of the Cultural Revolution, the motley band of radical and violent students who we met in episode 6, Xia Jiabang. They were tasked with attacking the Four Olds, which included destroying temples and religious artifacts. The supreme being of this new age was of course Mao Zedong, who, at the age of 72, took his much-fabled swim across the Yangtze River, signalling his great strength and vitality. Indeed, according to Chinese reports, the septuagenarian broke the record for the fastest swimmer in the world. Of course he did. As he pulled himself up the riverbank on the other side, the message was clear. After a period of relative obscurity while his rivals made the big political decisions, Mao was back. The Red Guards of the Revolution were only too happy to go forth and plunder in the name of the chairman. Among the religious or philosophical heritage spots targeted by them was the cemetery of Confucius in Shandong, a temple which was more than 2,000 years old. Such an ingeniously vague command, destroy the four olds, was suited to exploit anyone's prejudices, allowing anything and anyone to be targeted. It tapped into the worst human instincts of bitterness, aggression and herd mentality. Now in post-Mao 21st century China, religion is coming back, if only in reaction to the moral vacuum created by the loss of communist ideology and the rise of self-interested market fundamentalism. You can find people on WeChat posting quotes from the Bible in the public area, and churches have a decent showing. It's thought that China has 10 million Catholics. It probably goes without saying, but government oversight reigns. Religious institutions need permission to do what they do, and any preaching has to avoid planting any naughty ideas in the mind of those impressionable churchgoers. Over the years, the Chinese authorities have picked fights with the Pope and the Dalai Lama, the former over who decides who can be a bishop, and the latter for his quietly interminable call for an independent Tibet. One of Beijing's moves against the Dalai Lama has been to introduce a law to regulate reincarnation, 
a novel concept indeed for a fiercely atheist state. A wry eye is also cast over Christmas, with conservatives in China lamenting the holiday as too Western, infecting Chinese culture not only with foreign religion, but rampant foreign consumerism. In 2006, some students in Beijing called for a boycott, saying that Christmas is a continuation of the colonial project of Christian missionaries. Instead, people should support the dominance of our own culture, they said, and presumably our own rampant consumerism. In recent years, alongside Xi Jinping's embrace of a more nationalistic stance, local governments have become increasingly enthusiastic about curtailing Christmas, with schools and cities told to take down decorations some years. In a real-life example of what paranoid conservative commentators imagine is happening in the UK, some places in China for big Christmas trees, stockings and hats. As the Chinese have shown before, when they decide to go after foreigners, they do it with gusto. At the turn of the 20th century, resentment towards Christian missionaries, after decades of humiliation at the hands of the so-called foreign devils, combined with myth and conspiracy to such an extent that a full-blown uprising occurred. It's known as the Boxer Rebellion, a Western misnomer coined because many of its members were well-trained in martial arts. The boxers didn't just box their way through a fight, they also used rifles and swords. The foreign occupiers may have had superior weaponry, but this hardly mattered, because the boxers were impervious to Western weapons, or so they thought. Furthermore, millions of extra fighters would come down from heaven to help them rid their country of colonizers and Christians, so went the plan. They had no qualms about massacring their targets, who were variously termed primary hairy men, who were foreigners, secondary hairy men, Christian converts, and tertiary hairy men, people who used foreign goods. Women and children were not spared. After a while, the Qing government decided to support the boxers in their violent solution to the problem of Western colonialism. When the boxers and the Chinese imperial army besieged the foreigners in Beijing, an eight-nation alliance invaded China. This alliance was Britain, USA, Italy, Russia, Japan, France, Germany, and Austria-Hungary. Now, for all you history buffs out there, this is indeed an interesting band of allies to have in the year 1900. All the big players of the global game united by a common enemy, the already weakened China. Anyway, the Chinese Empress Dowager Cixi, a titan of latter years imperial China, who is all the more remarkable for being a woman in a very patriarchal system, well, she made the ill-fated decision to fight this eight-nation alliance. As the tide quickly swept against the Chinese, Cixi and her court fled to Xi'an, China's ancient capital, and opportunistic foreign powers took advantage of the situation. Russia invaded Manchuria, increasing the already ridiculous scale of their territory. Villages in northern China were destroyed by the incoming Russians and their inhabitants murdered, because apparently that's what Russian armies do. Others weren't exactly heroes. There was summary execution of people deemed to be boxers, but often weren't. Villages were burned down, women and girls raped. In return, Chinese troops and boxers and civilians engaged in atrocities of their own. Looting by the invaders was widespread. Western museums still hold artefacts stolen during this time. Although the British were reportedly proud of how orderly their looting was. 
ultimately colonial power in China was secured once more, although the position of the Japanese in Asia was clearly on the ascendancy, something that we will unfortunately have to address in a few episodes. Anyway, given a few more years, those same eight nations which put down the Chinese would find reason to turn on each other and draw the world into the First World War. If China has a tricky relationship with Buddhists and Christians, it is as nothing when compared to Muslims. Islam has a long history in China, since traders travelled the Silk Road in the 600s. Freedoms for the faithful have fluctuated over the years, but modern life under CCP rule is at another low ebb. Despite their inherent suspicion of religion, the communists gave Islam a little bit of a break during the Deng Xiaoping years, a reflection of general relaxation across the board. Well, that's all gone into reverse with Xi Jinping, although not all Muslims get the same treatment. Hui Muslims, who are more numerous, more geographically dispersed and ethnically closer to the Han Chinese, are often allowed to take pilgrimages, study texts and wear religious dress, while the Uyghurs, who are concentrated in the western province of Xinjiang, are usually forbidden. For their part, the Uyghurs reject communist rule and call their region East Turkestan. This is an issue in which history is just as important as religion. So let's take a little look at the history of Chinese territory. The cradle of Chinese civilization is between the two rivers, the Yellow River in the north and the Yangtze, or Changjiang, which means Long River, in the south. The civilization quickly expanded, but for most of Chinese history, China was potato-shaped, stretching from just above Beijing in the north to Hainan Island in the south, Shanghai on the eastern coast, and Chengdu, or Qinghai, in the west. It fluctuated a lot. The Han Dynasty, a defining dynasty of China which existed some 2,000 years ago, pushed westwards to secure the booming trade with Rome along the Silk Road, but much of the huge expanse which is modern China was first gifted by Genghis Khan's Mongol Empire to the north, which took over China and everything else in the area in the 13th century. His grandson, Kublai Khan, carved off the Chinese part into the cosmopolitan Yuan dynasty, which then ruled over the areas of Tibet and Xinjiang. The notion that a Chinese dynasty could rule over other ethnicities was firmly planted in the minds of the elite. When the Mongols were chucked out, China reverted back to the potato, but that larger China had become the ideal, and the final dynasty, the Qing, who were also from the north, this time Manchuria, would conclusively extend their rule out to Tibet and Xinjiang in the west and Taiwan in the east, before enduring the humiliation of western colonialism. Chinese schoolchildren will now tell you that China's shape, no ifs, no buts, is a chicken. So the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, who moved to the region after the downfall of their own empire in the Mongolian steppe, have often been ruled by others in the distant east who do not share their customs, culture or beliefs. To cement its grip on the area, the communists have encouraged Han migration into Xinjiang, which brought with it economic inequality and ethnic tension. Bubbling resentments blew into the open in 2009, not in Xinjiang, but in a toy factory some 2,000 miles away, in Guangdong. Groundless accusations of rape against a female worker led to a full-on midnight brawl. The participants split down ethnic lines. Two Uyghur men were killed by Han men, 
and when the news of the event reached Xinjiang, protests were planned. While initially peaceful, tensions rose as the police got more involved, and a riot broke out complete with attacks on innocent bystanders. The dominoes had begun to fall. In the years that followed, attacks were perpetrated by Uyghur extremists, including a car bomb attack right under Mao's portrait in Tiananmen Square. At each turn, the CCP responded with increasing repression on the general Uyghur population. The internment camps are the most famous part of Beijing's effort to impose submission and docility in Xinjiang, but the measures reach all parts of civilian life. They are a concentrated, hostile version of what the Chinese government does across the country. Thought police, surveillance, carrot-and-stick justice. Uyghurs in Xinjiang, not the ones in prison, have mandatory surveillance apps on their phones and people coming to live with them in their homes to keep an eye on things. Of course, fear of the outsider is never enough. As with any regime worth its salt, a decent amount of paranoia about homegrown subterfuge, the enemy within, is an absolute necessity. Enter the Falun Gong. The Falun Gong is an interesting case because for all the scary stories out there about how the Chinese government oppresses religions and groups they find troublesome, there are plenty of stories which suggest that the Falun Gong are genuinely nutty. And it's not easy to work out who are the bad guys in this story. Falun Gong is a spiritual and moral movement, influenced by Buddhism, but with enough weird things about it that it's been labelled a cult, and not without reason. The spiritual element adopts the ancient concept of the life force, qi, which also pops up in such places as Chinese medicine, feng shui, and the martial art tai chi. Whilst there's no evidence for such a life force, qi is a remarkably enduring concept, with many Chinese swearing by the various practices which encourage its flow. Indeed, when I hurt my knee, a healer in Shanghai cured me from across the dinner table at a wedding, by tapping into my qi somehow. The only problem was, of course, that I was still in pain and the problem hadn't gone away. But regardless, these handed-down remedies and well-being exercises command real respect in China. That Falun Gong goes in for the same thing does not mark them out to be particularly unusual. In the 90s, China had rapid growth in interest of these meditative pursuits, to the extent that there was a social phenomenon called Qigong fever. The sheer size of the numbers led to a crackdown on the movement, and especially Falun Gong, which had an estimated 70 million practitioners. Falun Gong practitioners cultivate their virtues with exercises and a kind of spiritual awareness, an active improvement of their moral character. Doing well enough can lead to supernatural abilities like telepathy and levitation. It's the supernatural elements that lead some commentators to consider Falun Gong a cult, and the godlike reverence they have for the founder and leader, Li Hongzhu, and the belief that different ethnicities have their own assigned separate heavens. There's also a lot of money swelling around, which is always a red flag. Oh, and the aliens. In a 1999 interview with Time magazine, Founder Li Hongju talks about qigong practice in China and about how he is helping people cultivate their gong. But it's when the topic turns to aliens that he gets really animated. 
The aliens have come from other planets and other dimensions and have basically corrupted humans with science and new ideologies. It's a bit like the John Carpenter movie They Live, and a bit like Scientology too, right? All cults are at their core tragic, and Falun Gong especially so. We are familiar with the stories of Jonestown, Waco and Heaven's Gate. Impressionable people being swept up by a charismatic leader with all the answers, eventually culminating in mass suicide or a shootout with the authorities. The tragedy of the Falun Gong is that while Li Hongju resettled in America, free to continue his Bami project, the followers he left behind were viciously persecuted. Instead of trying to help believers escape the spell cast on them by Li, they were thrown into detention, re-education camps and work camps, and trained to say, Falun Gong is a cult on command. Propaganda was put out to denounce the evil cult. The response had a kind of, shall we say, cultiness to it. Allegations of torture, killings and sexual violence are widespread, but the atrocity which is most closely tied to the persecution of the Falun Gong is organ harvesting. Would a regime like the Chinese Communist Party do such a thing as kill people, prisoners, for their organs? Possibly. Would they choose Falun Gong practitioners in particular because their spiritual exercises have led to their organs being especially healthy and juicy? It's not so plausible. In a world of claim and counterclaim, Falun Gong remains a murky subject. Their willingness to indulge in conspiracy theories and hyperbole leaves them lacking credibility. You can find them protesting outside train stations in Taiwan and Hong Kong, with hysterical banners reading, Eliminate the Demon Chinese Communist Party, and Falun Gong is good, sometimes with graphic pictures of victims or surgical procedures. Their wholehearted support for Donald Trump via their media outlet The Epic Times, which spread Trump's conspiracy theories and created fake pro-Trump Facebook accounts for the 2020 election, shows how comfortable they are with having a distant relationship with the truth. This is perhaps why Western journalists and governments have recognised the plight of the Uyghur people more enthusiastically than the Falun Gong, who always come across as rather unhinged. It's a real shame because their suffering is real, and even the organ harvesting claims have, in some form, been backed up by reputable studies. Back to the temple. We strolled around to the back of the building, finding a mural of perhaps 100 figures, each about the size of a hand. They are arranged on a wall made out to look like a mountainside, complete with waterfalls. There were mini temples and praying people, men with sticks doing the heavy metal salute, although I expect it meant something different in this context. We went outside and strolled round to another building, on the way, in stark contrast to the peaceful themes I associate with Eastern religion, we saw an array of gruesome posters showing sinners perishing in bloody scenarios. These poor sods were naked, impaled on spikes in unmentionable areas, overseen by blue demons with thin waists and Jack Nicholson hairlines and eyebrows. Fire was the element of choice, chains and spits keeping the condemned from overcooking. Oh, to be here as a child, you'd never err again. Hell and its toilers, unutterable pain and the pleasure of inflicting it. All while that Buddhist chant rang out in the background, it was very strange. Guan Ying, the goddess for whom this temple is dedicated, 
actually means the one who listens to the cries of the suffering. The story goes that she was the daughter of a nasty piece of work who just happened to be king. He wanted her to marry into wealth, while she wanted to marry a great healer. Her refusal to play ball got her punished and eventually killed, or simply escorted to the land beyond life by a white tiger. In the underworld she saw the terrors that the sinful endured, and she was consumed with pity. Seeing that she had been such a fine human, she had accumulated a great deal of karma, and with this she managed to barter for the souls of the dead. Now, trading karma wasn't something I realised was within the rules, but apparently so. The king never managed to marry off his daughter, but the Chinese gained an icon of mercy, and they've been praying to her ever since. In the biggest building sat the Buddha himself, and next to him, a fairly young Chinese man decked out monk style. Was he pleased to see us? Oh yes, he was. He first gave us an old CD and a small Buddhist book in Chinese, then beckoned us through a curtained door. We removed our shoes and were led upstairs. Up here were our extremely ornate rooms, with small gods behind glass and cushions on the floor for comfortable praying. We wound through these rooms, with the monk chatting enthusiastically all the while. He would stop to introduce us to another canonical figure, presented by portrait or effigy, to whom we would bow in reverence. Of course, we didn't understand what he was saying, but I'm not sure that mattered much to him. Eventually, we came to the room where the magic happened. Dozens of red cushions covered the floor, in front of three gold gods, each in a different glass box, each surrounded by a pleasant array of jewels and flowers. We were encouraged to pray, but I felt a tad fraudulent. I eyed the gods. They knew I was not a true believer. As I stood awkwardly, Jess dived in and said whatever she needed to say to whatever gods were listening, and I decided that if nothing else, this was an opportune moment to send out into the world, in my own silent way, a word of appreciation to whoever conspired to get a friend sent out here. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I share my diary for a week on the emotional roller coaster that was late November. <laughs>